0: with Dr. Frank Turek. Why should you believe in Christianity? Why should you even believe that God exists? Aren't there reasons not to believe in God? For example, evolution or evil or the hiddenness? I mean, If God exists, why don't you just show up and say, here I am. I mean, that would make it a lot easier. Why do we even have apologists? What's What's the deal with that? And do miracles occur? Can they occur? What is the evidence for the resurrection? Is the gospel actually an argument for Christianity? Is there is that something we ought to expect if God does exist and he's a loving God? Well, today, my guest actually got saved at the University of California at Berkeley, berserkly, some say. He's a PhD there. He's worked as a research scientist at Yale University, Duke University. He's published over 30 peer-reviewed papers And he actually gave that all up to homeschool his four children. He's been on the program before when we talked about critical theory. It's Dr. Neil Shenvey, ladies and gentlemen. Here he is. Neil, how are you?
1: I'm doing great. Dr. Turek, thank you so much. And you know, you asked, do miracles happen? And yet you just announced one. I became a Christian at UC Berkeley, right? So if God (laughs) can do a miracle like that, he can do anything.
0: That's right. Well, Neil, you have a brand new book put out by Crossway. I've been reading through it. It's excellent. And it's got some unique contributions to apologetics. The book is called Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. And as I just mentioned, ladies and gentlemen, Neil has his PhD from Berkeley. Was that in chemistry or organic chemistry? What was that in, Neil?
1: Well, in theoretical chemistry. So when people hear chemistry, they think like Walter White, Breaking Bad. They think test tubes and Bunsen burners. I, I tell them it's more like... Another show I haven't seen, which is The Big Bang Theory, or the movie A Beautiful Mind, where you're you're scrawling equations on whiteboards. That's the kind of Uh chemistry I did, so all all theoretical.
0: Now, give us a little bit about your background. Uh, we We know you went to Berkeley, but there's a lot more to the story than that. Kind of give our listeners a background as to where you're from and how you got to where you are. Sure. So I grew up in a very
1: loving but non-religious home. Um, I went to Princeton as an undergraduate, and I would have described myself as spiritual but not religious. If you asked me, Mm -hmm. you know, what are you? I would say, well, you know, I I guess I'm a Christian because, you know, I live in the U.S., and I believe in God, and so it makes me a Christian, right? But Mm -hmm. I had really no understanding of basic Christian theology. I remember at one point I was at Princeton Just you know, musing on my own philosophical understanding of God. And I said, you know, Christians believe in the Trinity. That's like the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, who's the Holy Ghost? Oh, I bet you that was Jesus after he rose from the dead. He he became the Holy Ghost. So that's Mm -hmm. and I I consider myself a very intellectual person, and yet I had such a not even basic understanding of Christian theology. Anyway, so that's my background. And then so how did I become a Christian? Well, I met my future wife Christina at, at Princeton. We were both chemistry majors. and just knowing her, I was amazed. like she was funny, she was smart, she was beautiful, but she was so not self-centered. She was so conscious because for her, her the biggest thing about her was not her intellect or her you know her her competence or her beauty. It was just that she was a Christian. And that was very attractive and also kind of threatening to me. but uh, we went then to graduate school together at Berkeley. And I also, at the time, had been reading a bunch of C.S. Lewis. And so mm. I, I picked up a free copy of the Screw Tape Letters in Your Christianity at a book table at at Princeton. And I thought this was great. You know, free books. These suckers will just give me free books and I'll just take them and never see them again. But I, I loved the Screw Tape Letters. It just spoke to me. And I was like, this is amazing. How does he know what's going on in my head? How can he see all of the struggles, the temptations, the pride, the, the posing? And then finally, I went to church with my with my future wife, Christina, and that's where I heard the gospel for the first time. And that it was just the simple message that you know you are sinful and you need a rescuer, you know, savior. And and the other thing that happened there was I met you know very intelligent people. So my quantum physics professor, as a first year graduate student, sang in the choir, and I mm-hmm. realized these people around me. I was surrounded by you know, professors and graduate students and postdocs who were still evangelical Christians. So that forced me to evaluate, well, am I taking
0: Christianity seriously? Mm. And what was the, the point that you said, I am now a Christian? Was it some argument you read? Was it some objection that was overcome? Was it just the witness that your wife or your future wife was giving you? What was it that caused you to say, yeah, I believe
1: this is true? Sure. So the thing is, it's interesting. I'd If I had to credit one person with convincing me that Christianity at least made objective truth claims, it was Bart Ehrman. So I'd taken a wow. class at Princeton. Yeah, this is great. So at Princeton, uh-huh. as a non-Christian, I'd taken a class uh, on the New Testament, uh, origins of the New Testament and origins of Christianity. And it was taught by John Gager, who's a secular person. Uh, we used Ehrman's textbook, as our textbook we, we read readings from the jesus seminar which is a very liberal um religious yeah. scholarship and and you know lane pagels was actually a guest lecturer one day she's a very famous scholar of the gnostic gospels so this completely secular perspective that class among evangelicals was known as the faith buster because mm. it challenged christian beliefs so so dramatically but what i learned as a non-christian was that there are a few basic facts about the historical Jesus that were accepted unanimously like he existed he had 12 disciples he was baptized by John the Baptist and you know he he got into some kind of religious disturbance he had followers that were tax collectors and sinners so this is a historical figure there's no doubt about that they just assume that like that's a, a, a canons of of new testament scholarship he's a real person and the general biography that we have in the bibles is generally it's a real historical person. So when I went to Berkeley as a non-Christian, I at least had this solid, be- true belief that, yeah, Jesus existed. And then sure, the religious stuff about him, I'm not sure about that, but he's a real person. So then when I heard the gospel that, well, he was a real person, and you know, historically, he died on the cross, but what if he died for your sins? And what if he rose from the dead? Mm. That, that's an objective claim suddenly. And the real hurdle for me actually was getting past my arrogance because I just knew in my heart, well, I'm better than these stupid Christians. I'm an intellectual. Mm -hmm. I'm a scholar. I'm getting a PhD. And all of these stupid, non-intellectual, uneducated Christians, they're backwards. But then, and God brought me to a place where I was like, oh my gosh, if I become a Christian, I'm admitting basically that I'm like a child. I need to be led by the hand and brought to God. I don't know him anymore. And and but I remember one night in in my apartment just saying to God, you know, I don't even know anymore who you are. I was so confident that the God I'd imagined was the real God. I was so smart, but if this is true, then I have to start from square one. And so I said, God, I don't know even if Jesus is your son, but if he is, I'll follow him. Mm -hmm. And I think that was the night I was regenerated. I was born again, and it took a long time for me to get really solid theology and to understand more of what it meant to follow Jesus. But that's the point I crossed from death to life. I just said to God, I'll follow, you. I'll follow him, right? And, and he brought me, you know, through the next few months, increased my knowledge of who he was and what, you know, what it meant to, to be a Christian. But
0: again, that was the turning point. So are you saying that a course at Princeton that you used Bart Ehrman's book for inadvertently gave you the minimal facts <laughs> that historians agree on regarding Jesus? So, well, not, the, the funny thing
1: is they, of course, they did not treat the resurrection Okay, so they, right. they they established that okay he's a real figure he died on the cross and then of course the religious subject of whether did he die for your sins. Ehrman's like well that's a religious question. So for me it's like well it's not a historical question really. It's a, it's re-. but then I, as I asked so shortly after becoming a Christian I was like well what about the resurrection then I believe it as a Christian but historically did it is there evidence for it. The funny thing is. Then I immediately turned around and I used the tools we'd learned in that class. And I said, wait a minute. I know that historians, when they look at historical facts in, say, any document, they ask things like, is it multiply attested? Are there multiple independent sources that say this happened? I said, wait a minute. Yes, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John and Paul's letters. Is it embarrassing? Well, sure, the women discovered the MP2. So I applied the very things I learned in that class to say the resurrection right. is historically credible, amazingly. Wow.
0: We're talking to Neil Shenvey, his brand new book, Why well, Believe, A Reason to Approach to Christianity. We're just getting into it, so don't go anywhere. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in two minutes. if you're low on the fm dial looking for national public radio go no further we're actually going to tell you the truth here that's our intent anyway you're never going to hear this on npr even though the man i'm interviewing is certainly qualified to be there he's a phd in theoretical chemistry from the university of california at berkeley he became a christian after going to both princeton and berkeley and he's explaining why and he explains more in his new book why believe a reason to approach to christianity it's Neil Shenvey, Dr. Neil Shenvey. By the way, if you type in Neil Shenvey Apologetics, you'll find his website. Shenvey is S-H-E-N-V-I. Neil, just before the break, we were talking uh, about this course you were taking uh, that used Bart Ehrman's material, which inadvertently led you to believe in, in Christianity and the resurrection. You, meant, you mentioned the principle of embarrassment, multiple attestation. What else did you learn in that class that brought you to Christianity?
1: Uh, and the main things were just that the, the, the biblical gospels were at least gave you a picture of a real person. Now, again, they okay. would say there's lots in there that's been made up, that's been that's uh-huh. fabricated, but but the basic outline of Jesus' life was real. And then I went back and said, well, wait a minute, what are the tools that we use to arrive at that conclusion? And realized if you apply those same tools to say the resurrection, you find that this is actually historically credible. Another one would be, say, early attestation so are the earliest documents saying that this thing happened and of course mark's gospel is probably the earliest gospel written paul's letters are even earlier and they're also the best sources for the resurrection of jesus so by those tools that we learned in that class of historicity i'm saying wait a minute the the resurrection can be treated historically
0: now, when uh, you wrote your book, and you just, this book just came out just a month or two ago, it's called Why Believed? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. How do you treat the issue of the resurrection in the book? What, what sort of arguments are you bringing to bear to say Jesus actually did rise from the dead?
1: So I use an approach very similar to William Lane Craig's approach, of mm-hmm. the, the best explanation for all these facts. We have things like the empty tomb. We have, well, the death and death and, death and burial of Jesus. We have mm-hmm. the empty tomb. We have the the appearances or the experiences of of the resurrected Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever they thought, whatever actually happened, the disciples certainly believed they'd seen the resurrected right. Jesus. Then we have, say, Paul's conversion. So those are sort mm-hmm. of four basic facts we have, and I defend them. I say, why do why do why could we conclude that these facts are actually historical? And I quote from non-Christian scholars saying, yeah, you know, we buy those facts. And then I ask, well, what's the best explanation? And one of the things that's interesting that I found as I researched this book was some of the the alternative explanations offered by atheists and non-Christians for those four facts are absolutely weird. And so my favorite Mm. one, which is extraordinary, is the idea that Jesus had an identical twin? Yeah, I know. And and you you know you hear that and you're like and and people will claim that well that explains you know why the tomb was was empty that somehow maybe his twin stole the body or that's why it explains the appearances the the disciples saw the identical twin and they thought it was Jesus, and you think that's like an episode of Twin Peaks or it's like a conspiracy theory, but you yeah. have not only do you have people like uh, Greg Caven, who is a former evangelical Christian, now I think an atheist, but he debated in public. He debated William Lane Craig on the resurrection and put forward the twin hypothesis and then even stated on camera that it was better an explanation than any other atheistic explanation. I'm like, like, so I'm like, well, okay, if you think that, then I got to tell you, I'm leaning towards the resurrection as even as an atheist. If I were an atheist, I'd be like, that's, that's bad news. But then you're like, not only did he appeal to that, but Bart Ehrman in a debate against Craig offered two explanations for the evidence. And one of them was this twin scenario. And I'm thinking, this is madness. You know, and I'd say this, I can, if you're an atheist, I can see why you might say, well, miracles are just so weird and so un, implausible. Like, okay, if I'll grant you that on, on your worldview, but you have mm-hmm. to grant me the fact that an identical twin conspiracy theory that involves the twin, like, pretending to be Jesus and, as as Kevin says, putting uh, makeup on his hands to simulate the nail marks, That's that, to me, is implausible. Right, that's crazy. So at yeah. le- it's at least, like, a, a toss-up in between... Did did Jesus rise from the dead supernaturally, mm-hmm. or did he have an identical evil twin who impersonated him? And then at one point, Cavin even he just throws this out there. He says the other explanation is the ET explanation. He doesn't elaborate, but I'm 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 thinking he must say there's a possibility that aliens impersonated Jesus, and that <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I think we're done here. So that yeah Wait, that, you- that, that yeah.
0: You talk about in the book why well, I believe this sort of methodological naturalism, and uh, there are people out there on the atheistic side who just have ruled out miracles before they look at the evidence. What do you say to somebody, Neil, who says, well, anything's more probable than a miracle? The twin theory, the hallucination theory, that's more probable than a miracle. What would you say?
1: So I'd say a number of things. First of all, when they say that, they're often working on an antiquated view of physics. So they often have this, you know, billiard ball model of Newtonian physics where everything, the universe is like a giant clock. You wind it up, the the big bang, and then it just kind of runs, and things happen deterministically. Well, that's a Victorian view of science. So this is actually my field. So I have a PhD in theoretical chemistry. I specialized in quantum mechanics, and Modern physics does not think that way. I, you know, According to the laws of quantum physics, the universe is sort of, it's very weird. And the bottom line is that miracles might be improbable, highly improbable, but they're not impossible. They don't violate the laws of nature because the laws mm. of nature themselves are not necessarily deterministic. It's, and it's complicated, mm. but that's one thing I'd say is that if you're working from this, you know, clockwork universe model, you just need to be up to date, updated a little bit. Um, the other thing I'd say is that uh, you know, Christians don't believe that miracles happen regularly. That's the whole point. Right. Miracles are unusual. They're signs of God's power. They're, they wouldn't be meaningful if they happen all the time. So we That's don't right. expect to see them everywhere. C.S. Lewis says they, they happen at the great ganglia of history, at these major turning points. Well, what's one of those obvious turning points? Well, if Jesus was, in fact, God's son, then his death and resurrection are the turning point of all history. So we would expect to see a miracle there. And then finally, I point out also that we say, well, why? how do I know that Jesus would be, risen, would be raised from the dead? Why didn't God raise other people from the dead? And again, if you say, well, it's implausible because of billions of people that have died, how could you say that only Jesus was raised from the dead? That's like a one in a billion or one in 10 billion chance, given how many mm-hmm. people are not resurrected. Mm-hmm. Well, then I point out when you say that you're making assumptions about God's purposes and character and existence. So I give an example. Imagine that I go up on the roof of my house and uh, I'm dropping a bowling ball. I drop a bowling ball and it takes one second to fall to the ground. I time it. I do it a million times. I do it a billion times. My friend's watching me and every time it takes exactly one second to fall to the ground. Then I tell my friend next to me, I said, now I'm going to drop the ball this time and it's going to take 10 seconds to reach the ground. My friend looks at me and like, no, it's not. That would violate the laws of physics. You've shown that a billion times it's going to take one second exactly. And I say, no, 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 it's not. Watch. So I drop the bowling ball and I catch it and I hold it for nine seconds and I let go. And he says, wait, wait, you cheated. You, you know, you you intervened in the natural course of events. And I said, yeah, of course I did. You know, because the laws of nature are what happen when no one intervenes in them. Right. But if God's outside of nature, then he can intervene. And then one last thing. Imagine that and that that last drop. Imagine that I, I'm about to drop the ball And I let go of it. And then just at that moment, my daughter walks out right below me, right below me, and the ball's gonna hit her. Now, if you pause right there, freeze time, and ask my friend now, what's the probability that Neil will catch the ball this time? And he'd say 100%. Because given my character, given my love for my daughter, I'm absolutely gonna save her. I'm gonna intervene in that one instance. So, in the same way, if Jesus was who he claimed to be, there's not like a one in a billion chance that God would raise him from the dead. There's like a 100% chance because God is doing something unique with Jesus, showing people that he is, in fact, the Messiah.
0: I want you to comment on this. I'm reading from your book, Neil, bottom of page 79. This is from Neil's book, Neil Shandry's book, Why Believe. You write this, doesn't it strike us a, uh, strike us as a bit remarkable that the one miracle which, according to Anthony Flew, who was a skeptic for many years— uh, the one miracle which is the best attested in any religion in all of history happens to be associated with a figure who also had the moral character and impact of Jesus. How do we explain this coincidence? Unpack that further for us, Neil. That's
1: right. I think I got this argument from Tim Keller because he basically uh-huh. says, imagine you lined up all of these figures in history, like the most uh, the people that changed history. So you uh-huh. list people like I you know Hitler. Uh, right. Buddha, Genghis Khan. But then Jesus would be on that list. He clearly yeah. changed history. And there's no question about that.
0: More than then, anyone. Yeah. More than anyone. Mm-hmm.
1: You'd argue, yeah, yeah, he's number one. But say he's number mm-hmm. two, number three, whatever. He's on that list. Let's mm-hmm. say then you make a list of people that claim to be God. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you have crackpots. You have people like Jim Jones or I list some other right. random cult leaders, but you got Jesus on that list too. Mm-hmm. So then you're like, Well, wait, that's odd. There's one person on both lists. He actually made these claims, which I showed in my book that he actually made those claims. And then mm-hmm. also he changed history, and then independently, we have this evidence that he actually rose from the dead. That Anthony Flew and other I quote other non Christians and atheists who say, "Yeah, actually, the evidence there is kind of it's weird." <laughs> it's it's so even if they don't believe it, they're like it's not nothing. So I'm like, that's and again, you're asking me to swallow a pretty enormous set of coincidences, and I think the more mm. natural explanation is, what if he actually is? we claim to be
0: yeah and the fact that this guy has as you say the most attested miracle claim in the history of the world associated with him and he is the most influential human being in history you would say well how is this guy the most influential human being in history something dramatic must have happened go ahead Neil. and
1: not not just influential but look at how he influenced history Right. Mm-hmm. He wasn't a king. He wasn't a military right. leader. He, he had. He was a itinerant preacher. He, mm-hmm. he when he died, he had maybe a hundred. I mean, all his followers left him. But even at the, mm-hmm. he had maybe a few dozen, a hundred followers. And this guy, and then, and then more than that. And then somehow there's this rapid turnaround where he's now you know worshipped as as God by two billion people. And then if you look at his actual teachings, even today you have atheists like Dawkins and Sam Harris saying, yeah, his his teaching, even if or whoever wrote his teaching, we don't even believe he existed, but whoever wrote his teaching, they're, they're, they're relevant today. You have ins- him mm-hmm. inspiring you know uh, movements for uh, freedom and for for equal rights throughout history. So there are all of these things that line up, and it really gets more and more uncomfortable to say
0: it's all one big coincidence. When we come back, I'm going to ask Neil about some arguments against the Christian faith, against theism, like evil, evolution, divine hiddenness. Before I do, I want to mention that this weekend, so this would be July 23rd and 24th, I'll be at Calvary Chapel, Port St. Lucie. I'll be speaking at all the services there. And then a special afternoon service where we're going to, first of all, in the services, we're going to talk about if God, why evil? And then in the afternoon session, we're going to be talking about should you follow your heart? We'll be taking a lot of questions as well. Then across the state in Tampa, my friend Charlie Kirk is running his biggest event of the year. It's the Student Action Summit. And there's going to be some amazing people there. You can go to his website at TPUSA. So if you're near Tampa, you may want to check that out, especially if you're a young person. Check it all out. We're back here with Dr. Neil Shenvey in just two minutes. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to I don't have enough faith to be an atheist with my friend dr neil shenvey i'm frank turek neil's just written a great new book called why well, believe a reasoned approach to christianity And before i start asking you about these objections to god neil give us kind of the overall reason for the book and the outline of the book just so people know what they're getting
1: Sure. So I like to pitch this book as uh, it's like Tim Keller's Reason for God for STEM majors, that's science, technology, engineering, mathematics majors. It's very, I, I talked to readers, people who have read the book, they said, you know, we can tell you're a scientist because you think uh-huh. through things so systematically. Uh, it's not emotionless. I talk about how, you know, th- about the gospel and how it's moving and, and it's important, but it's very systematic. And I think it's that it, it brings out my scientific training. Um, and then the purpose, I wanted to write a book that was accessible, that people, you know, mm-hmm. high school students were motivated, could read it, college students, people that hadn't been to college, but you know, they, it's, 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 there's no jargon. It's not technical. It's, you could read it. But I wanted a book that people that are in college could give to their professors and not mm. feel like it was, they were embarrassed or just didn't fit with the pressures. I'll give you a reason, and this is not at all and it meant to disparage the book, but I really like Jim Wallace's Cold Case Christianity, J. Warner Wallace. Uh-huh. It's a great, really cool book. I thought it was really helpful, but it has hand drawn illustrations in it. And if mm-hmm. I had handed that to one of my professors at Princeton or at Berkeley, they would just immediately open to Oh, it's got pictures in it. I mean, give me a break. They so would I dismiss to, it, even even yeah. though the
0: quality of it is great. Yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah, it's my, yeah. So
1: my point is, I want to write a book with it has footnotes. You know, it looks yeah. like a, and it right. is. It's it's well researched. I in, and interact heavily with top atheist scholars, philosophers. Uh, not mm-hmm. just like the new atheists, like Dawkins and Dennett and Hitchens and Sam Harris, but also with people like Bart Ehrman, Paula Fredrickson, uh, Anthony Flew. So I, I interact with people that are, you know, making this, the best case for atheism or against Christianity. So I want that so a, a college student could give this to their non-Christian professor, their non-Christian friends, and not feel like they're going to come across as non-intellectual.
0: Right, good. Well, let's talk about some of the objections to theism, that God exists. And we can't cover this in a lot of detail, but you have a chapter on this. Let's talk about the objection from the problem of evil. If there's a good God, Neil, why does he allow evil to occur?
1: Right, and one response is to ask, if there's a good God, then why does he allow Brussels sprouts to exist? Because, you know, I really don't (laughs) like Brussels sprouts. And so how could a good Mm. God allow something I don't like to, and you say, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. That makes no sense. God, God's not here to make you uh, you, know, you like what he creates. I said, oh, that's a good point. It only, that, that argument only works if Brussels sprouts are objectively bad,
0: objectively well, evil. That. Right.
1: <laughs> but my point is, when an atheist poses that question, how could a good God exist if evil exists? I say, what do you mean? Do you mean a subjective preference that you don't like what's out there? No, no, no. I mean, objective evil. Oh, excellent. Because one of the premises of the moral argument, which I treat in the previous chapter, is that objective good and evil exist. And if objective good and evil exist, then I argue in the last chapter that you need God to ground those objective moral mm-hmm. facts. So they're mm-hmm. almost doing, their, doing some of your work for you. So when you pose yes. that external problem of evil, then you're admitting that, yes, in fact, good and evil objectively exist. And therefore, we have to ground those, those, qu- those qualities. So... That's one immediate answer. The other answer, I give many different answers, but one other answer that I give is, well, logically, uh, evil allows two goods that would not be logically possible if evil did not exist. If evil didn't exist, then God could not show his, his. I'd say, moral evil, so, so human sin. If sin did not mm-hmm. exist, then God could not show his mercy in forgiving sinners, and he couldn't show his justice in punishing sin. So even the existence of evil, which is objectively evil, it allows for God to show his love and his holiness. And so those are, and, and we exist for God's glory in the end. And so it's, just a, it's, a, it's a way, even though it is evil, obviously, but it can still further God's purposes for the universe, which is displaying his supreme love and holiness.
0: We're talking to Dr. Neil Shenvey, his brand new books, Why Believe, A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. Second objection you have in the book to God, evolution. What do you say about that? So yeah, again,
1: there's a whole section on this. So Briefly, I say the main point of contention between Christians and, say, secular atheists uh, over evolution is in the question of whether uh, random mutation and natural selection alone can produce all the things we see uh, in life on Earth. And I argue that for both philosophical and scientific reasons, we don't have to accept that to final idea that random evolution a random evolution therefore rules out god's intervention his guidance of evolution if that's how we did it and here's why i just so i am defeating that claim and philosophically i point out that quote-unquote random events are still guided by a sovereign god so i did a really fun experiment with a bunch of kids a few a month ago i had them all basically flip a coin and whoever got the most heads i called them up to the stage and i said hey this coin is your own coins is it random they're like yeah it's random they keep flipping it and someone got you know 10 10 heads and like okay so you come up was that random like yeah it's totally random and i handed the kid a 10 dollars bill Mm-hmm. And they were like, whoa, they're, they're little, they're like, in know, teenagers. They're like, "Whoa, that's a lot. And I said, that was random, right? I said, like, yeah, absolutely. I was like, was God sovereign over that? And they all went, whoa, because they mm-hmm. realized things that look completely random, they'd soar up and down, they were random. And yet they realized if God is sovereign, he's sovereign over all of those natural processes that look completely random to us. So you can't say if it looks random, these mutations mm-hmm. look random, therefore God's not involved, God's not sovereign, God's not mm-hmm. guiding the process. The other point I make is that if you compare, I said this, a Duke molecular biology student, uh, I said, here's a question, I'm just curious. Uh, take all the evidence we have that you'd point to and say this is evidence for evolution. Take all that stuff you think is evidence for evolution. It's, an, it's evidence of non-guided, random evolution. Take all that evidence. He says, "Yeah, okay, fossil record, all these genetics things. Okay, I, I'm a I'm a biologist. So I just asked him. You tell me. Mm-hmm. I said, imagine this. Imagine that." Some atheists believe that aliens brought the first life form to Earth. Yeah, people like Richard Some Dawkins do. speculating yeah. that maybe it was mm-hmm. aliens. Uh, and so I said, just hypothetically, imagine the aliens. I don't believe that's true, but let's just say aliens brought the first life form, and aliens stuck around to conduct this to conduct this long-term, multi-billion-year experiment on life, where they every few thousand years they grabbed a bunch of you know species, they put them in a big gigantic pen and they intentionally mated them, they bred them like a farmer does to produce new traits. Because Darwin himself said, you know, the analogy to natural selection is breeding. We breed animals all the time to have, you know, more more wool or, you know, longer neck, whatever. We, we pick a trait, we, we exaggerate it. So imagine these aliens every thousand years gather some animals in the pens and they would breed them until they have some new trait, until maybe even they'd even insert special genes through futuristic alien technology and genetic engineering. And... Here's a question for you. So that's clearly now the aliens are doing guided evolution. They are literally breeding new species. Question, is there anything in the actual evidence we have right now, fossil record, genes, all this stuff that would rule out that guided process? And he thought, and he's like, no. And so my point is, wait, so you're saying is we can't really rule out guidance, even scientifically, because as long as it's aliens, he's like, well, no. I said, yeah. like, OK, wait. So if you know, if you can't know that aliens weren't involved, how can you know that God wasn't involved? Right. So yeah, this is it's a scientific objection. I'm pointing out, me. I'm not saying it's aliens, obviously. I'm just saying, look, if you're going to mm-hmm. claim the evidence rules out design... Even scientifically, I think it just doesn't. And and I'm not a biologist. I'm just, I'm a mere theoretical chemist, but
0: I'm I'm raising this possibility. Well, as you know, the interesting aspect of breeding is that even intelligent breeders run into genetic limits, Mm -hmm. right? They can take a dog or series of dogs and, and breed them as small as a Chihuahua, as large as a Great Dane, but they can't break the genus of dogs. It seems to me, if we're using all of our intelligence and can't break the genus, why do we think a non-intelligent process can do it? it
1: doesn't, yeah, well, the aliens kind have inserted genes because they're futuristic. So I'm oh, just, okay. I'm, <laughs> I'm pointing out that like it, the evidence that we have can't mm-hmm. rule any of this stuff out.
0: And so right, then you can't right. say,
1: well, the evidence just shows. It's not guided. I'm like,
0: well, mm-hmm. I don't think it does. Do you deal with the, I haven't read the whole book yet. And again, the book is called Why well, Believe, A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. Do you deal in this book at all, Neil, with the... The origin of natural laws themselves, the forces of nature. Do you ask that question and how do atheists respond? Because they just assume that these laws exist and do all the work for them. But the question is, where do the laws come from? Where does the universe come from? Where does the fine-tuned universe come from, including the fine-tuning of the laws of nature? Do you deal with that at all?
1: Yeah. So I point to, again, the fine tuning of the fundamental concepts of physics. I cite uh, Barnes and Lewis's excellent book, A Fortunate Universe. They're both cosmologists. And so they've Mm -hmm. done a lot of work on fine tuning. Uh, But then I also actually point deeper and say, what about the, as you alluded to, the mathematical structure of the universe? Why do we have laws at all? And what's more, why is it that human beings can even understand those laws? Like my cat, you know, can't understand the laws of nature, but human beings uniquely can. So Mm -hmm. under what worldview, atheism or, say, Christianity, under which of those two worldviews is it more natural to expect that, one, the universe has a law-like structure, there are laws, it's not chaotic, things just happen like by magic, they're actual beautiful laws that describe all of nature, and that human beings are somehow uniquely positioned in capable of understanding those laws well it makes perfect sense if god is supremely intelligent and rational and he designed a rational intelligent universe governed by laws and if he made us in his image human beings are uniquely then equipped to understand his universe so that makes sense on christianity but on Mm -hmm. atheism that's sort of weird Why, why aren't things chaotic i could imagine a chaotic universe i could imagine a universe where the laws change from planet to planet Or from time period to time period, and Monday's laws and Tuesday's laws are different. I can imagine that, but not the universe we live in. And also I can imagine us just not being smart enough to understand the laws Mm -hmm. of of mathematics. So I, I give some plausible explanations that atheists might posit like, oh, well, we evolved this way. And I show why those are insufficient. And really the better explanation is that the universe looks this way and we can understand it because we
0: were made in God's image. Yeah, the rational intelligibility of the universe, I think, is a great uh, argument for theism. Mm -hmm. And friends, as you know, when we're arguing for God or any aspect of Christianity, we're normally arguing from effect to cause. So if we have a creation, that's the effect, we're reasoning back to a cause a creator. If we have design, that's the effect, we're reasoning back to a cause of designer. If we have a moral law written on our hearts, that's the effect, we're reasoning back to a cause of moral law giver. If we have the capacity to rationally understand the universe and we see these laws of nature out there and the laws of reason, if that's the effect, we ought to reason back to a mind. In fact, it was Philip Johnson. I don't know if you've read much of Philip Johnson, Neal. Um, uh, philip passed on a couple of years ago he was really one of the founders of the modern intelligent design movement when he first wrote the book uh, darwin's uh, no he wrote uh, darwin on trial he was an mm-hmm. attorney
1: at berkeley at don't berkeley know if you yeah ever, no, i remember yep
0: did, did, did you run into him at all because i think i was, saw him speak one time like he was already yeah. fairly
1: old when i was there but yeah he definitely yeah, he famously said
0: time. he famously said that uh first of all he said that um that he was a skeptic in one set of beliefs is a true believer in another set of beliefs. So if you know if you're if you're an, an, a skeptic of Christianity, you probably believe in in evolution and quantum vacuums and uh, you know a, a, some other way of explaining why the universe is the way it is. And then he said something else really profound. We'll have to bring it up after the break because we're running out of time here. My, my name's Frank Turka. My guest is Neil Shenvey. His new book you need to get is called Why Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. We're back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. School shootings, pandemics, genocide, rape, and murder. Why does God allow such evils, ladies and gentlemen? And did the God of the Old Testament actually do evil himself? You'll get answers to those questions and even your own questions when you enroll in the course run by Dr. Clay Jones called Why Does God Allow Evil? It just started. You're not going to miss anything if you sign up over the weekend. The first Zoom session with Dr. Jones is next week. So go to crossexamine.org. Click on online courses. You'll see Why Does God Allow Evil? Sign up now. We just got a few seats left. Let me go back to my friend Dr. Neil Shenvey, his brand new book "Why Believe: A Reasoned Approach to Christianity." Uh, I was talking about uh, I was talking about uh, uh, Philip Johnson there uh, just before the break. Let me complete the thought on him, Neil. Then I'm going to ask you about the divine hiddenness question. Philip Johnson also said he wrote a book called "Reason in the Balance," where he points out that if if materialism is true, then reason's gone with it because if we're just molecular machines and we're just moist robots, and we can't even reason. And of course, C.S. Lewis talked about that before him. But he said, it makes the most sense that our mind is made in the image of the great mind. That's why we can actually do science. That's why we can actually understand the world around us outside of our our skull. We can know what's going on out there. And God has given us this apparatus so we could know not only the universe, but know him. We could look at all the effects that he has created and we can reason back to a cause. And your book points that out as well. But let let me ask you the divine hiddenness question. We don't often talk about this issue. You know, if God is out there and he wants people to believe and be saved and he loves us, he's got infinite love. Don't you think he'd be a little bit more overt? What do you say to that?
1: Sure, and I, I I say I grant the fact that if God wanted to, He could do all kinds of miracles, do whatever you want, you make make you levitate, you know, put a make an angel appear in Times Square twice a day and say God exists, mm-hmm. right? But so I say, wait a minute, that's, that's true. He could do that. Why doesn't he? And the answer is because our problem is not ultimately a lack of evidence. There's there is evidence. I think I show it throughout the book. There's evidence, but there could be more evidence, sure. But that assumes the problem is a lack of evidence, whereas I point out the. Biblically speaking, the real problem is our our desire our our false loves. We, we we don't really want there to be a God like the God of the Bible because why? Because we don't want to be uh, we want to be our own lords and saviors. And so, if God just appeared to you and said, "Here I am, and now do what I say," if you actually look at what that would entail from just the Bible's commands about how we ought to be living our lives we recoil from that kind of God. It's our hearts that need to be changed, not just our brains. So, you know, it's, you know, if God changed our minds about whether he exists, we still might loathe him. So then the question mm-hmm. becomes, well, how can I change my heart, my affections? And that's where I lead into the final section of my book, which is the argument from the gospel. I argue that the gospel is the way that God changes the human heart to make, to make us open to him and to, to make us uh, respond to his invitation.
0: Well, you actually talk about that in the last section of the book. You say uh, it's an argument from the gospel. It's a little bit less well known. So, how, right. do, how do you explain that argument? What is that, the argument from the gospel?
1: Right. So, I make the case that the gospel itself, the message that Jesus came to die for your sins and arise from the dead for your justification, that that message is evidence that Christianity is objectively true, which sounds weird. So, here's an illustration. Imagine I'm playing pickup basketball, in the middle of the game I collapse, people run over, one guy says, oh, you sprained your ankle, I'll go grab an ace bandage, another guy says, I'll get you some Advil. They're talking about the best way to treat me, but a woman rushes up and says, I'm a doctor, I saw what happened, and you need to get to the hospital right away, call 911, your life is in danger. And everyone's just incredulous, they say, lady, you're, you're being extreme, you're hysterical, There's, This this is ridiculous, and she leans down to me and she says, I'm going to tell you two things. You can't feel your legs and you can't move. And I look at the crowd just, they're going crazy. They're like, she she is overreacting. And I tell them, no, call an ambulance right now and get me to the hospital. Now, why do I do that? And the answer is because I know two things the crowd does not know. I know that I can't feel my legs and I know that I can't move. And I say to myself, I reason, I think now nobody else knew that. And no no one else, everyone else assumed I just sprained my ankle and so she uniquely among all the people in the crowd somehow knew what no one else knew so the 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 rational explanation is she must be actually a doctor she must mm-hmm. be uniquely equipped to treat me that explains her unique knowledge of me so in the same way i argue if any religion identifies two deep fundamental truths about your condition that you are immediately aware of the best and it's unique in those claims then the best explanation is it is a uniquely true religion. And then I then in the next three chapters, I explain that actually Christianity makes two unique claims that we're radically sinful, we are radical mm-hmm. moral failures, and then two, we need a rescue, not just moral improvement, not just a little boost. We need someone to come in from the outside and and free us from our sin and forgive our sin. And, and only and Christianity is unique in those claims so I walk through like a, a book by Stephen Prothero who's not a Christian it's called God is not one and in that book he goes through all the religions of the world or the main ones and says Christianity is in fact unique in making those claims you are radically sinful you need a savior then I go through the evidence and say look human beings are radically sinful talk about genocide and rape and murder and just all the horrendous things that come out of our heart we are deeply Broken people, and then second, we need rescue. We don't just need, you know, self-help books and a more positive attitude, and and order to you know, obey God's law. That's not enough because we don't obey God's law. So and, and so, I again, I go through the case that we need not just better government, better schools, in you know, more money, um, or more return to traditional values. Those things that might be great, but they're not going to fix our main problem. We need a savior, and then if that's all true. Then Christianity is the only religion that gets those two things right, and therefore, it's it's the best explanation. Is it's true? Did you say there was a third thing? You said uh, it was Christianity makes if if a religion is unique, it makes unique claims. uh Then it's probably true. Christianity makes unique claims. Are they true? Three, yes, both claims. Three, the claim that you're a sinner is true, and the claim that you need a savior is true. There are four premises and then one conclusion. But each of those, I argue for in the book.
0: What would you say to somebody who said, well, no, I know I'm a sinner, but I can make it up by doing good deeds. How would you respond?
1: Yeah. So I have a whole section on that. And so I point out, like, does that, does the human law work that way? Imagine that I get brought to court for murdering a six-year-old girl in cold blood. And mm. I, so I get up in front of the judge and I say, he says, well, you confess to the crime. We have it on video. We have your fingerprints on the murder weapon. And so you're clearly guilty. What do you have to say for yourself? And I say, well, your honor, I did in fact murder that young girl, but on the other hand, I recycle. I mean, I pay my taxes. I, I volunteer. I, I actually, I volunteer at the nursery at my church where I met that little mm. girl. So I think in light of all those things that I do that are good, that should offset this one act mm. of murder. I mean, murder is only like 0.03% of what I actually spend my time doing. So I mm. think really, let me go. And so after that little speech, would I be declared innocent? No would i be more or less Yeah, probably less... in
0: San Francisco or New York, you <laughs> might they might let you go, Neil. <laughs> well,
1: i think but to to same people, i've actually, uh-huh. you know, i brought down even more wrath and guilt mm-hmm. on myself because i've shown that i have no idea what i have done, i have no remorse, i have no proper mm-hmm. perspective, and i deserve 10 times greater punishment than i did before the speech. And so we think what? we're going to walk into God's courtroom and make that little speech to him after a lifetime of sin. That's, that's insane. And the final thing I say is also Christianity offers not just forgiveness, but cleansing. When we become Christians, Mm -hmm. God gives us a new heart. And so the analogy I make is to, you know, the Bible uses the language of of slavery, but I think a good modern adaptation would be addiction. We are sin addicts and we need not just forgiveness, but we need to be put in rehab and God will Mm -hmm. do that for us. Christianity alone, again, offers us new hearts that then desire new things And just forgiving someone, yeah, I forgive a drug addict. Oh, you're forgiven. You're not going to go to jail for breaking the law. That's they'd probably be grateful. But if they're in their right mind, they'd say, "Can I also? Can I please get into a program? Because I don't want to live like this." Well, Christianity, Jesus offers us both. You know, this a double cure. You
0: know, Mm -hmm. save from wrath and make us pure, both. But but how how do we deal? I know Hitchens brought this objection up. You know, you can't make us sick and tell us to be well. In other words, yes, I know my I have a sin nature, but God gave us this, and now he's holding us on account that we do have this sin nature when he's the one that really made us this way. So you can't say to people, I made you sick, but be well. How do you respond?
1: And one thing I'd say is the Bible always lays the blame of sin at our feet. It never says, "Oh, it's mm-hmm. God's fault." It's like, "No, if you if how dare you talk back to God." And but here's a more practical thing. When when I'm in the act of sin, when I'm actually committing a sin, no one's holding a gun to my head. Like I'm like mm-hmm. if I, you took a timeout pause, Neil, what you what you what are you doing right now? Do you want that? I'm like, "Yeah, I want that. That's why I'm doing it." If I didn't want it, I mm-hmm. wouldn't do it. So the idea that like we're constrained to do bad things by, like, by the system or by the government or by my, my social location, or no, it's, it's us. It's our hearts that mm-hmm. do that. And you say, well, the thing is, if, if you say, well, I still think it's fair, well, God's like, well, you can have, if you don't, it's, it's fine, it's not fair, fine. Take my forgiveness. You're like, what? No. <laughs> well, right, I don't get yeah. it then. Mm-hmm. He's offering you, if you really feel like you hate sin and don't want it anymore, you can be forgiven and cleansed right now. But you're the one saying no.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, Neil, uh, where can people find out more about you and uh, where can they get the book? I know they get it on Amazon. Anywhere else? Well, I Believe? A Reasoned Approach to Christianity by Neil Shenvi. Go ahead.
1: So, uh, yeah, Amazon Crossway is the publisher. You can buy it there. Mm-hmm. You can find me um, on Twitter, Neil Shenvi, at Neil Shenvi, N E I L S H E N V I. I'm on Twitter too much i'm uh i'm doing it less these days uh if you google neil shenvy you'll find my website i think i'm like the only neil shenvy in the world right now so it's not hard <laughs> to find me <laughs> my email's there i happy to talk to you if you have any questions um but uh, yeah the, i think the best way is on twitter um
0: yeah what are they going to find on your website because you in addition to christian apologetics you also deal with some of these cultural issues yeah, so I
1: I've recently spent a lot of time uh, dealing with issues of race, class and gender, critical theory, critical race theory, queer theory. And so I've mainly been reviewing books. I've just been reading extensively popular authors, scholarly authors and it's uh, reviewing these books from a Christian perspective. Um, but that's and actually that's that's my next book I'm actually writing it right now with Dr. Pat Sawyer. I'm writing a book on critical theory in Christianity which will get like, come out whenever, I'm not sure when. That's Neil Shenvey, ladies and
0: gentlemen, the new book, Why Believe, A Reasoned Approach to Christianity. Thanks so much, Neil. Thank you, Frank. And friends, don't forget, I will be in Port St. Lucie this week at Charlie Kirk's events on the other side of the state. Check that out at TPUSA. Next week, I'll be in Cincinnati, Ohio for CIA and speaking on Sunday out there. So check our website for more, crossexamine.org. See you here next week. Lord willing, God bless.